Dropout Podcasts. Hello and welcome back to Adventuring Academy. My name is Brandon Lee Mulligan. With me today is my wonderful friend and amazing guest, Matthew Mercer. Hi guys. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you may know Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master of Critical Role, as McCree of Overwatch, and also we're so delighted to announce as Leland in Dimension 20's first side quest, Escape from the Blood Keep. Mm -hmm. Babies, it's high noon here <laughs> on this podcast. Gotcha. Um, yeah. uh, we're so excited to have you, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. This is a pleasure. Uh, so this is so, so exciting. Um, so uh, uh, we were talking a bunch before the break. We kind of started this podcast 15 minutes ago. Before yes. Was <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, no, it's hard when you're genuinely passionate about something to this degree. You're like, yeah, like, no, let's not save it for the cameras. Let's jump in. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit today uh, because something that comes up all the time on our Discord from people that you know will message the cast of Dimension Twenty, being like, "Oh, like I'm thinking about starting up a game. How do I do this?" Uh, is the idea of running homebrew settings and the mm -hmm. idea of creating worlds for yourself to play in. Uh, obviously, there's a huge amount of awesome modules out there, which are actually separate even from campaign settings, like Five, you just had Ravnica come out. Um, talk to me a little bit about your history with the game, your first experiences with making your own settings, and like what motivated you to do that? Why has that been something you come back to over and over again? Right. Um, for me, ironically, I, I came into the game from a homebrew standpoint. Like when I was first introduced to the game, there weren't modules being run. The very first game I ever participated in as a player was a really, really shitty homebrew game and inspired me to start Dungeon Mastering. So I was like, it has to be better than this. Like it, this can't be the game everyone keep hearing about. And so I started running my own game with a few of my friends. And at the time I really wasn't aware that modules were a thing. I just had the Dungeon Master's Guide, the player's handbook and you know, that was about it. And so it was like, okay, I guess I have to make up a world now. And it was a really terrible world. And, uh, you know, everyone who starts in, in that amorphous void back then, especially like, you know, it's just not, it's not going to be great. But I did, later on when I realized there were modules, I was like, oh, that would have been so much easier from that point. <laughs> and then I started reading through them and was like, okay, it's good to know that at least eventually when I got more comfortable with my world building, I wasn't that far off from the kind of things that were you know, being presented in these modules. And I think... I think that that's uh, for those who want to do a homebrew world. If you haven't run a module or at least haven't read modules, I recommend it because it does give you an idea of a general structure to prepare for sessions uh, and the kind of things in the world you might want to create. Uh, you know, in the world to be prepared for when these things come up. It's not by any means a blueprint because sure. every everything is is its own unique scenario. But um, but yeah, so I, I came into it from a standpoint of of kind of not knowing any better. and <laughs> That's an amazing superpower. I really can't recommend not knowing any better. <laughs> it, truly, I, yeah. it's like an incredible gift to not put that judgment on yourself to be like, I don't know how this is supposed to work. I'm just going to start. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting to hear you say that. I was very similar in terms of... Um, my, I played with my brothers a lot when I was a kid, and we would, when we were like six or seven, we had this thing called Weird World, which was just literally drawing strange lands, beasts, 
our incredibly supportive parents put them all over the walls. <laughs> and when they did that, that was just the floodgates opening until it was like, we're talking like maybe a hundred plus drawings over the walls of like <laughs> islands, lands, this, that, that. So being introduced to D&D &D was like, oh, you're saying there's a system to represent decision-making and chance in these lands we've already made up? Oh, no. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, hell yeah, that sounds great. This explains so much. <laughs> So there's this like idea of we were already very much in that headspace of like creating mystical lands and like reading a ton of fantasy novels, which is like I come from, I was talking about this with Murphs a little bit yeah. about he comes from like a video game background. I came from a very literary like Lord of the Rings and Narnia. That was my background too. Yeah, yeah. a lot of Piers Anthony, a lot of, you know, Dragons of Autumn Twilight, like there all these go. classic books. Oh yeah, Dragon Riders, you know, like all just boom, boom, boom down the line. So this very literary background and, you know, I've to this day I'm like if a book doesn't have a map of some kind of land in the front of it, odds of me enjoying that book very well. Um, but, but there is a uh, so similar situation when I first started DMing, I was like 10 years old. It never occurred to me to have anything outside of um, our own homebrew settings. Yeah. And I talked about this, about this a little bit with modules, which again, I do want to separate from campaign settings. I, in the very first episode of this podcast, I talk a little bit of shit about modules only because I struggle with them. Mm -hmm. uh, because I find it hard as a DM to navigate the bridge between where my authorship begins and ends. I actually agree with you on that. That's that, that, because I've done modules since then, but in the same way that like I came at to, you know, from that standpoint of not knowing any better trying to consolidate that I felt like I was either being untrue to the module if I wasn't sticking to it and it would break it down the road right? versus learning how to trust myself that I can fix whatever issues come up and still make it my own. And I think it's a lot of an issue that people come up with when they're new to the game or at least uh, aren't, aren't as familiar with modules that you do not have to stick to it. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, in fact, a lot of the fun of it is taking the module and going, all right, this is interesting. How can I pull this apart, take my favorite pieces of it, and still make it my own? Oh, yeah. I mean, we covered this in the very first episode, but there was, you know, the first module I ever ran was Acts of the Dwarvish Lords, mm. was, you know, them plunging into a dungeon. This dwarven princess was supposed to be kidnapped. Well, in the very first scene of the game, the dwarven princess, uh, there was like flavor in the book about her. Uh, not being into the marriage. So my PCs clocked that with like whatever the second edition version of an insight check was. Yeah. And they kidnapped the bride and bounced. They fled town. <laughs> <laughs> There's no going into the dungeon. This is now a case of a fugitive, like a kidnapping scenario. And so it's one of those things where I was like, well, to hell with this. If, they're, if the PCs are going to throw this many wrenches into the works, I'm better off just, re you know, relying on my own mind, period. Yeah. Um, but I, I obviously with campaign settings, it's very different because there's things like Planescape, which I played in all oh, throughout my yeah. teenage years. Love Planescape, um, uh, and and you know there's a lot of other great ones like Athos or there's stuff like that. Uh, and this is something that's interesting as someone who's both created settings uh, uh, and has also played in a lot of the core D and D settings. What do you? And this is I'm going to get very philosophical. Go over again. Go ahead. <clears throat> What is the purpose of a setting? And whether you are creating it or simply, you know, being the vessel of it, uh, what is important to you about a setting uh, and representing it and what its job is in the minutia of actually playing a D&D &D game? Mm. 
I think that from a philosophical standpoint has many answers and is relative to who's running the game. Sure. Um, I think for some people, a homebrew setting is an outlet for a lot of pent up creative energy. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of people out there that, you know, want to write, want to create, and maybe they aren't artists, maybe they aren't painters, maybe they aren't poets, maybe they they aren't don't feel comfortable enough in their ability to do prose and dialogue, but they still want to create something that feels their own and feels unique and magical. And being able to create your own homebrew world that doesn't require it to be legible by other people, just understood by you and then presented to your friends at the table, that in itself is a very kind of wonderful and cathartic act of creation. And I think for a lot of people, uh, that that can be a fantastic outlet that can lead to inspiration to pursue some of these other creative things that maybe you didn't have the confidence in. And I've seen a lot of people that have come into D&D in recent years through all these different great communities uh, say that because of my time running this game and creating my homebrew world, now I'm writing a novel. Or now I'm in the process of, of going into a creative writing course. Or maybe I'm... I'm discovering that I want to go into theater. You know, th these are all different things that you that stem from this little spark that you didn't think you had an outlet for until you begin to create your own game. I mean, f no joke. You can draw a direct line in my life from college humor to UCB in New York to me getting those D&D books when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, yeah. it is a direct, like, <clears throat> you know, I even used to joke with friends when I was improvising in New York and being like, oh, the skills I have I got from playing at the table with my friends, yeah, uh, which is very real. Um, that I think is really awesome, and it's something interesting. I don't know if you have struggled with this before because I sometimes will get questions about, um, like, what are your tips for designing a setting? And I think there are definite good concrete building block tips you can give about what makes a setting good or fun, but there's always a part of me that goes like, well, a setting can be anything. You can be in the in the Taurus of Sigil, you can be in the blasted deserts of Athos, you can be in your own homebrew high, uh, homebrew high fantasy thing, you know, or season one of Dimension 20, you can be in a high school in like yeah. a suburban town. And it made me have this weird thing where I, I was thinking about how to communicate good concrete tips to people that want to do this and trying to balance that with the fact that when I'm coming up with a setting, a lot of it is just like a thing appeared in my head. Yeah, it's hard to convey that. And once again, it's relative experience. You know, even before when I was saying some people, they just want to create something. For some people, it's because they find something that's lacking in the space of storytelling that they want to convey. It's a, a personal narrative or something about their life and their world experience they feel isn't being represented out there. And they want to be able to express that and invite other people to see this other viewpoint and kind of world that they want to tell their story with. Uh, that's why another tip I would say for, for creating your homebrew setting is uh, come up with a strong theme. Yeah. Um, I, I will honestly say when I started my Critical Role uh, you know, game at home before we ever started streaming it, it was a one shot. There was no central theme. The world building for me was very reactionary when I began to flesh out Taldore and it wasn't until partway through that campaign that I began to figure out what the themes were. But even then it was very much like a classic kind of vanilla fantasy was where it began. And then eventually when it began to become more of a thing, I wanted to figure out what themes I wanted to express as part of this world and this story. And in the new campaign, you know, for the, for the Wildmount setting, I definitely wanted to pursue different themes. I wanted to find ways to uh, to tackle the intrinsic coding of monsters, races being evil, and you know, tackle ideas of relative morality and conflict and warfare and the good and bad things that come out of that from on a historic level. Um, and I built the setting kind of around those themes. 
So uh, it can be as simple as going, I want to make a theme where where the, the people can can fly and, you know, the, the animals are their best friends. Like, okay, sure, that's unique. It could be... It could be, you know, ridiculous, complicated political threads. It could be, I want a world where everyone lives on the moon now because the world's destroyed and they're trying to find a way to rebuild the world. It can be, you know, a dimension hopping sliders type thing where this setting is built in the idea that every few days the world changes in unexpected ways and it's all about adaptation. It's about a society trying to survive and adapt. All of these can be their own settings, but you want to try and think of a core theme because once you can clarify that, it'll inform and in many ways kind of springboard the ideas of how your world building is going to go. If you don't have a theme, then you're kind of loosely trying to find space in the ether. Like, this is there's a town here. Why is there a town? Because I feel like there should be a town here. And that's fine. <laughs> there are towns that exist that are there because someone thought there should be a town there. Believe me, I know. I've lived in some of these. I've driven past many of these. There are places where you drive by and go, why is there a town? There's no reason there is a town here. And somebody went... I'm going to put a town here. And that's fine. But I think for, for the for the fun and enjoyment of your players, you want there to be some sort of core, uh, even just a subtle theme that excites you to tell a unique story. I a million percent agree. And not only that, but I think what you're driving at is also something that – it comes from a place of deep pragmatism. Because when you start talking about world building, it can feel so, you can feel your brain just start to expand and go galaxy Scary brain. Scary shit, man. Yeah. But to get really pragmatic, what you're talking about when you're talking about theme relates to the most pragmatic thing, which is what's the experience my players are gonna have at the table? And when you organize your ideas of world building, not around like, okay, I could come up with anything. What do I come up with? But rather, okay, let's get really precise. What is the vibe I want my players to have while they're playing this game? What's the type of story that I think they'd have fun doing? Because probably by the time you're homebrewing, or at least for me, I knew who loosely I wanted to play with. And I was like, I kind of know what we like or what I think is fun. Um, and I think the idea of organizing around a theme gets to, I'm gonna, this is like, this is like some hot take territory here. Mm-hmm in terms of world building, because a lot of people are jumping on the internet talking about world building, and you get a lot of people who will come out and be like, good world building is like, you know, you need to know the logistics of the trade routes between this and the topography of rivers and this and that, and that's all awesome if the vibe of your setting is one of hyper-realism. Yeah. Right? And that's great. That's great. I mean, that's honestly some of the basis of early Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games. You know, a lot of historical enthusiasts that wanted to, they didn't just want to build a story, but they wanted to feel like it was a living, breathing world and mm-hmm. break down their Excel documents on, you know, the uh, the trade transitions between copper and iron ores to grade manufacturing. And that's cool. Not to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> right. And what but it would, could be for your table. And what I would say there again is like, don't get it twisted. Like, like high logistics is not the one true path. It is if that's the tone you're going for. Yeah. And similarly, like I often get into tiffs with friends who will bring up Harry Potter, uh, which to me, I often go to bat and in this, amongst some certain circles, this is a hot take. I go, Harry Potter has the best world building of almost any uh, fantasy series that I can recall. And people will be like, what? what you, you know, why? Like, what's the world building Harry Potter got going for it? And I go like, well, look, there is a, people to this day know what their Hogwarts house is. That's good world building. And it's an element of, now I will say that 
why do I bring that up? Because the logistics of Harry Potter are fucking nonsense. <laughs> yeah. They're fucking crazy. <laughs> you have, and I, I, if I've said this before, I'm, I think I might have said this in some, not on this podcast, but somewhere else. I'm going to say it again. If you've got a civilization of wizards who can teleport at will and they have their mail delivered by nature's slowest bird. <laughs> That's fucking animal cruelty. <laughs> That's not okay. That's not okay. And I know what you're going to say. You're going to say you can't apparate in the grounds of Hogwarts. Why are we running our civilization based on the bylaws of one school? Yeah. If the idea that I would be able to teleport anywhere with no effort and I would ever write someone a letter is fucking crazy. If we want to be logistical about the entirety of, of Harry Potter, Hogwarts is the Illuminati. They run the world because if you can do the things they're doing, why the fuck would they not be just helming the future of society and becoming just an, an entirely oppressive political force that nobody could argue against? And also on the flip side, if you're not an oppressive political force, you're just allowing the horrors of the world to happen. Like yeah. you've got to make a move at some point. The, and the idea of here is like all of that is I say with only the utmost love. Of course. Because I treasure those books. I've read them so many times. But it's a the reason I bring that up is if you're in your head designing your first setting, you're, you're a DM, you want to make your homebrew setting, and you're getting hung up on logistics, remember that a setting's strength is not only logistics, it's also bum ba da bum 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 and a fucking owl, and it flies in the wands, and like the little boarding school uniforms. All of that stuff actually has, I would say, a heavier pragmatic weight on what brings joy to your players, yeah. which, which let's not forget is the point, yeah, right? I completely agree. It's, it's one of those things where I'm going to mic here for a moment. Um, hey, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's better. Uh, for me, theme, like I said, theming, mood, um, and breathing life to the macro elements of it mm -hmm. are what are going to draw your players in. The, the logistics of it are what are going to make you comfortable in making logical choices on a reactionary basis, which is honestly most of what you do as a dungeon master. Right. You're, you're, you're building a bunch of structures and toys and things for your players to play with, and you want to feel prepared enough that when they start messing with it, you can go, okay, well, this happens because it makes sense. Right. And I would say that, like, knowing the logistics is a great way to have that come back. I would also say, and this is something I talk about a lot as an improv teacher, that, and this is very related to theme, is the idea of tone and mood provide logic as well. I ran a setting for many years during college and after uh, with a bunch of friends. I ran it when I was working at a LARP summer camp. So mm -hmm. it was kind of a West Marches style thing where everyone that was working at the camp was playing. We had like 40 PCs who would show up randomly. So I was like, how the hell do we make this work? And so we set it in one city. It was called Storm City, and it was fantasy noir. It was like, it was in this mountain pass. There was a curse where it was always raining. So there was like four hours of shitty gray sunlight and then 20 hours of night every day. And it was like this thing where when people took risks or made choices, we understood that almost through the laws of physics, the tone of this setting is gonna manifest. What's gonna happen when you make a choice? The worst thing's gonna happen. The grimmest, most cynical, pull the cigarette from the orc detective's lip. You know, like that kind of vibe. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I think that DMs should uh, try to marry the two as possible. And adherence to actual physics, logistics, you know, 
if you have a dungeon, how are these monsters going to eat? That's a good question to yeah. answer. But also realizing that like a lot of our favorite things are based in genre. And if I'm in the like Miyazaki sky adventure setting, I'm like, oh, I'm a little kid in a Miyazaki movie. I'm invincible yep. versus I'm a little kid in a noir setting. I'm in a lot of danger. <laughs> That's a very important distinction. To <laughs> really, you got to know yeah. tone. But no, but that that. that you want to build enough where you feel comfortable that you can, that you, or if you're building a setting for other people to play in as well, that they can feel comfortable stepping in and knowing those things very quickly. I And no setting is perfect. You know, there, there will be things that you don't focus on. There will be things that don't make sense when you break it down and then you have to come up with a logical way to bridge it. And that's part of the fun. It's problem solving. A lot of it is, the player's part is problem solving how to deal with these challenges you throw them. And for you, it's problem solving on how to marry the choices they make, how they affect the world and how the reaction of that world is to their choices. And like you said, it's a combination of both. The, the, the tone, the theming, the, the sense, the feeling, the themes you want to present. But I've, I've gone in and decided what the, you know, the heavy, uh, you know, trade uh, exports are of certain regions that might never come up, but if the player, but then it helps you build the world a bit if you're like, well, this is a heavy iron trading city. Yeah. Okay, why is that? Maybe there's a big mine nearby and they're, they're one of the big sources of ore in this region. That also means that there's probably gonna be people out there that are looking to rob any sort of precious metals, which means there's probably gonna be a bandit presence in the outskirts of town. There also might be uh, some sort of an underground guild that is trying to control the market in and out or trying to mm -hmm. skim money off of that trade practice or you know, steal materials to go sell on the black market offhand. Like just on saying, this place probably sells a lot of iron. There's so much that can inspire you in that point that makes logistical sense there when you're trying to build it. So. I think coming up with pragmatic and logistical elements are really great. You just don't want to get caught in the weeds of it. Let it be an inspirational point and not feel like it's your job to fix every problem and dot every I and connect every single dot and get into that maddening point of, you know, what is their tax code? What happens yeah. if they have a third child? Do they have to get it approved by the Senate? Like, a, what, you know, if you get to that point, take a step back and, you know, Start building a small little town elsewhere. <laughs> well, it's really funny you mention that because, again, I think that that is really accurate. And, again, it always comes down to, like you're saying, what have you and the players all agreed to play? What's the thing that you've all come together and said, we we want this style of play, right? Because I, my brother ran a maritime campaign where trade stuff – I was a pirate. Yeah. If I don't know the trade stuff, if we don't know what this city sells, that really impacts my ability to like even play this character. Uh, and like shipping technology was very important. Um, there was another thing. I remember playing this low-level campaign that was like a very small number of people. It was people that were just like, we haven't played D&D before. We want to play it. Um, and there was this thing where I, they were, it was like a wilderness thing. They were very low level. Only one of them had any ranks in survival. And the... Uh, a wyvern showed up, which was just a, a total party kill waiting to happen. And we, I set up this encounter where they were trying to get to this city. There was an area of a, many miles of open plains before the next section of yeah. forest. And I was like, okay, you guys, if you guys go out, the wyvern will see you flying over in the sky. And they were like, can we try to run across it at night? And we had to make this whole encounter, which was, can you run for 10 hours straight? during the night while it's not active. And it sounds so crunchy and boring because all it was was a bunch of like constitution saving throws. Yeah. I put on some music and the rolling these 12 constitution saving throws in a row, I've never seen PCs sweat more in my life. <laughs> <laughs> they, f they made it just before sunrise to the final, like the, the new forest ahead of them. Yeah. And I watched four real adult humans all go, ah, ah, like they had just run. <laughs> 
you know, 30 miles or whatever. Uh, uh, so logistics and things like that are great. If you're playing a very grim, dark setting, like in regular high fantasy D&D, no one wants to clock like, like injury or disease, like sort of hit points are abstracted. So you don't want to be like, oh, would I have lost an eye? Would I have lost an arm? But the idea of like, no, if we're playing like Dark Ages, Europe, low magic, like, yeah, you got hit with a sword and now we're going to roll to see if it gets infected. Mm -hmm. And that might be not be fun in one campaign, but in another campaign, it's really fun. And and to play to, to step away from like the the world building scenario, this comes into the kind of campaign prep. But it's important to have those conversations with the people at the table before you start playing. A session zero or a, a getting everyone together to really agree upon the theme, the tone, and what everyone's comfortable with is so important to any game table. Because if you all of a sudden four sessions into the game, start going, all right, cool, roll for the infection of that graze on your chin. And the person's like, what? I just I just want to be an elf that makes sparkles. And you're like, I know. It's going to be harder to make sparkles when your throat gets gangrene. So let's roll and see how well that goes for you. That that, that That's an incongruency in enjoyment of the game, possibly, you know? Yeah. So you want to make sure that everyone's onboarded to what it is. Because you might be friends where you're like, is it cool if we go super grim dark and want there to be real, like, accruing uh, consequences to damage. Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, I love that. Then hell yeah, you're all on board and everyone's excited when those threats come up. But if you have an outlier on that, there's going to be tension and there's going to be disagreement. I totally agree. I feel so bad for old Thalmuriel. <laughs> where, is our, where is our sparkle mage? I have terrible news. <laughs> uh, we're going to take some audience questions now. Uh, this one's from Hollywood. Thanks, Hollywood. By the way, uh, if you're watching this uh, uh, on YouTube, you could have watched it a week earlier on Dropout if you wanted to do that. And you would have gotten it. Also, we only accept questions from uh, people who subscribe for our Dropout Discord server. So these are all taken from people there. Thanks for submitting questions. Uh, from Hollywood. In terms of alignment, do you think it has any real utility for player characters at this point? Or just so you can tell if you're dealing with a demon in disguise and such? Any thoughts on the very early one-axis alignment that assumed a certain cosmology where law and chaos were at war and characters might be aligned with one side or the other or neutral in the conflict? Ah, uh, I think this, this, is a, this is an expansive uh, topic. I think the alignment system, as presented in like D and D, the the popularized alignment system from those days, I think can be a good utility for people that need a guideline to to build a character around. Mm -hmm. For people like our performers, like we're we're used to stepping into roles and kind of creating in that space and letting letting the character's personality inform their decisions. But for some people, it's not a comfortable thing to do, and the alignment choice can help them become comfortable and where that character will go, as opposed to going, I just made this character, and then over time, I'm, okay, I think they're, they're making good choices. Maybe they're a good person. People mm -hmm. are like, I want to know if this is a good character because that will make me comfortable in making choices and making decisions as this personality. Right. Um, I don't think it's necessary. I, I, think, I think it's a good training wheels type scenario when it comes to role playing, but once you have more experience, you're more interested in what the personality and the goals of your character are versus whether or not they're good, evil, neutral, and across the order and law spectrum. I totally agree. And I think that weirdly, as someone who studied philosophy formally, 5e made a really strong move towards, I think, a more realistic depiction of human nature when it emphasized Bond's ideals, flaws. Yes. Uh, 
not, again, not to be the expert on how human beings work, but generally speaking, it feels truer to me the idea of like, oh, people do have like their their bonds, their attachments to a group and to a community, uh, or or to or if not to a community, then to something else that's sort of tangible. They have their ideals, which might be organized along good or evil, uh, or might not. Uh, I have a long running campaign that is in a kind of colonial period where it's a lot of humans fighting other civilizations of humans and detect evil and detect good become really hard because you're like, what does that mean in this context where there's not exactly. demons? And one of the things we ended up doing was we we had detect evil become a cultural spell that so that we had one character from this culture called Yashad where his detect evil is just detect cowardice. Hmm. And it just means like if you are physically, martially brave, you register to this guy as a good guy. And if you're not, you don't. So you could be the nicest, sweetest guy from this other little gnome culture or whatever. But if you get scared of physical confrontation, you're going to register as evil to this guy. That's interesting. Yeah, well, because when you, when you break it down, there are there are universally good things that people can do. And there are universally evil things where most everyone agrees that's that's it's an evil person to do this. Yeah. You know, there's no one like I don't know Jeffrey Dahmer. He's misunderstood. <laughs> like, I guy was a fuckhead. Um, but the but but the 95 percent gradient in between those two is a lot of relative morality that you you can't define on a universal scale. And so to, to, the, to that degree, uh, I like adjustments like that, where you can customize aspects of it on a cultural level, on a perspective level. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, I think it's an interesting tool on a, on a basic scale. But as you become more of an advanced player and you want to pursue more uh, delicious, detailed, and, and uh, uh, I don't know, philosophically fulfilling storytelling yeah. at the table, uh, you really have to ask yourself what those mean or if they're even necessary. I think that's very, very apt for almost any DM listening to this to like customize that again to your table. I would also say though that I think alignment's not going anywhere anytime soon. No. Partially because it is directly tied into the cosmology of the setting of D&D. If, like as long as there is Mount Celestia, Arborea, Beator, and the Abyss, you're going to have these four corner points of lawful good, chaotic good, lawful evil, chaotic evil, and like what does that mean? Mm -hmm. um, which I think is a kind of interesting, you know, there's other ways around that, but I think that it's interesting that uh, the utility of alignment in D&D is pretty equal to the utility of things like Myers-Briggs and other stuff in our yeah. world. Where it's like, oh, this is one way of describing something that was kind of already there to begin with. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, uh, it makes more sense to be like, oh, this person has these tendencies towards order and goodness in that classic kind of paladin way. Uh, but that's just sort of a type of person to be, and this is describing that. Rather than someone being like, I have dedicated myself to the ideals of lawful goodness, <laughs> which is, it's like, that's sort of a, cart before the horse scenario, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, well, I, I think it's also why in the older editions, paladins were a very difficult class to really exemplify or play because players would either have a hard time enjoying or fitting themselves into this preconceived notion of a lawful good paladin. Yeah. I, I can only do this much. My character can make choices in this box and anything beyond that, I attack you. You know, that for a long time, that, that was kind of the perspective and people either played paladins to be a dick to the rest of the players at the table and kind of fulfill a power fantasy of, ha ha, 
You, you, you looked at me wrong. Stab. Yeah. Um, you know, or they just didn't want to tackle it, and they were like, "That's too constraining." Like they're yeah. powerful, but I don't ever want to try and 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 fit into this this not realistic perception of a good character. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I yeah, it's not going anywhere, and it has utility. It has utility for world, for setting. It has utility for being able to understand that in a game like Dungeons and Dragons or a lot of our role playing games where you. Uh, Ultimately, part of the game is to overcome villains mm -hmm. and and rise up and become a hero. There has to be some level of universal uh, antagonism, right? And that's where the the fiends come in. That that that's where part of that cosmology. There is a a pure and defined entity force that is evil. Yeah, um, it may not be realistic to some stories out there, but. But that I think the alignment comes more into play in the you know the outer planes type aspect of it. But when it comes to more personal stories in the world of you know humans and dwarves and, and tieflings all living together, mass hysteria type scenario, um, <laughs> yeah, it gets a little more weird. Yeah, I totally <laughs> agree. Um, uh, that makes sense to me. Um, uh, this is a, a good one from the uh, this. Uh, uh, oh, we don't have a name here. Well, whoever you are. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, from the DMPOV, what do you think of stereotypical accents used for NPCs? Mm. I'm split because I can see how having a gruff, mean character use a Russian accent, for instance, adds to the immersion for players. But there's got to be a line where it becomes a little derogatory at some point. Very much so. That's actually something I'm, I'm, I'm very sensitive about. Mm -hmm. um, as a voice actor, I've studied a lot of dialects and accents. It's something that I've just enjoyed personally. It's both both immersing yourself in cultures you haven't had the opportunity to really engage with, and kind of, uh, I just, I don't know, I, I love the beauty of regionalisms and accents. I love listening to the, the wide variety of interpretations of, of English and other languages and how it sounds, and there's like, there's many languages that are poetry. Uh, I love listening to a thick Scottish brogue. I love listening to fluent Afrikaans. I love listening mm -hmm. to all these different beautiful things, uh, and I want to incorporate and show a diverse world and, uh, Part of that is trying to ride that line of what is considered appreciation versus what is derogatory. I'm not saying I've always gotten it right, but as long as you're conscious of that, I think it's a step in the right direction. I think the importance is to ensure that, one, you're not trying to play it for laughs necessarily. Right. Um, sometimes you can't help it. You know, I right. say this as a Scottish man. Sometimes, sometimes it gets real <laughs> ridiculous and you can't help but chuckle. Um, so uh, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you're like, well, you know, this, these people are bad, so I make them all Russian. That falls into a classic kind of, you know, American hero media trope that maybe isn't the most healthy thing. It's really hard. And, you know, I, I've had, um, I remember I was teaching an improv class where this comes up all the time, right? Where someone brought up a regional accent and was was sort of like that regional accent sort of bothered me, and I was like, well, let's stop, let's talk about that. Yeah, and it was like I see that confirms some harmful stereotypes. We should worry about that. And the student who had raised the point uh, was sort of like, yeah, like I just get really uncomfortable with that. And one thing I ended up talking to that student about afterwards was, hey, just so you know, in an earlier scene that we didn't stop for, you were playing a character that uh, uh, was sort of in a scene going like, golly, everything here is real nice, wow. And it's like, that's classism. You're doing a lower class voice. You're doing a voice of a like poor, uh, you know, unprivileged, you know, like that, that idea of, and the problem is like, we were all laughing because there's this horrifying thing with comedy where you go like, oh yeah, like, 
uh, a redneck becoming the king of England, that's crazy. That would never happen. But why are we laughing? Oh, there's some like class stuff baked in there and that's a bummer and you got to examine that. Especially, I think this comes up a lot when you're in a setting that actually has real groups of real people from the real world, right? Yes. Uh, but even when you're like, you know, if, you, if we go and look at Lord of the Rings, is there something fucked up in the fact that all the orcs are Cockney and all yeah. the elves are RP? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is. You know, why Why can't we have some orc being like, I do say, I love to destroy the world's men. <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, Solomon. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry's on the phone. Or and, and conversely, why can't we have an elf be like, look, there's a couple of things I love. <laughs> I, I love Rivendell. I love a nice bottle of wine. Like, why, why not? Yeah. No, no. And, and I, think, I think it's one thing. Uh, if your players raise discomfort at the table, take that into consideration and and be like, okay, well, I need to work on this. Mm -hmm. um, another thing is if you're going to include, because I think accents and regionalisms are a great shorthand for for make, showing a variety of personalities and characters in your world, if you're comfortable in that, um, but make it a variety. Right. Don't, don't attribute one to a certain stereotype of a bad person or, you know, you can show that, that culturally uh, diverse life in the world that you're running, in the world that you're building, but you have to un you have to also keep in mind that people from all walks of life come from all walks, and you know you might have a bad guy that's Russian, but mm -hmm. also make sure to include some good guys that are Russian. Yeah. You might have a bad guy that has an Irish accent, maybe include a good guy that's an Irish accent. You know, like try and 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 make it not about the accent; it's just a layer of of cultural uh, flavor based on where they're from and how they grew up that adds to the world and the experience and doesn't become a character a defining characteristic of their personality. I. 100% agree. And I think that there is that you're talking about this balance between on the one hand, like, yeah, we don't ever want to become derogatory or fall into stereotype. But if you are employing voices, which I think does create immersion and fun at the table to have a variety of character voices. Also, the reason I started doing voices as a kid for characters was just to keep them all straight, just yeah. to literally keep it like who's talking right now. Um, but uh, one of the things that you want to do, I think, too, is look for not going too far the other way of avoiding voices, which can almost become weirdly like erasure. Like our world is full of people who sound different. Yeah. And if your world is reflective of that, then you should have people that sound different. But that idea of not ever having anything be monolithic uh, or having one group of people be one type of way, I'm just flashing back to all the characters I have now. I There's a, in the long running 3.5 campaign I have, the nation of inventors that are a bunch of these little hobbits that live in a, a big like Grand Canyon thing. Yeah. They're all Texan and they're like, they are the, the species in the thing that gets a plus two to intelligence and all the inventors. And I think you can do fun things like that, like take an accent that we wouldn't associate with like like high education, but have people be like, yeah, I'm a head of the university down in Ten Falls, a professor of, you know, golem studies or whatever yeah. it's going to be, right? <laughs> uh, like, yeah, using voices as much to challenge those is, I think, really beneficial and healthy. I agree. And like, I, I love dwarves. They're my favorite race in D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. I grew up, and I love Scottish Brogue, as you know. Um, so for me, being a Tolkien fan, I've, it's it's hard for me not to tie the two together. Mm -hmm. um, and even in my, my homebrew game, I a lot of dwarves happen to be that way. But not all of them are, especially as we get to see them in other parts of the world and stuff. Um, and that's hard for me. Yeah. It's hard for me to break away from that because I, I love that combination so much. But 
you know, I also want to acknowledge that there is a, a, you know, diversity in that space too. But I mean, I'm not perfect. I'm sure I mess it up too. And the idea is just being conscious and being sensitive to it. You're coming from a good po- good place and you're aware of the incorporation of these aspects into your game. That That's great. Um, you're not infallible. Be open to feedback and adjust and adapt as you go. I love that. Um, uh, this uh, uh, this one's from Teddy. Thanks, Teddy. Thank you, Teddy. Do you have any suggestions for DMs dealing with weak characters? I've been DMing a few one-shots to get my feet wet, and I have a couple players in particular who give their characters no personality or motivation, or worse, they don't give me any character information at all. All my PCs have procrastination issues and don't make characters until the day of the game, at which point they just throw some stats on a character sheet and sit back waiting for me to entertain them. It's hard to get any input in character creation since we play over Roll20 in Discord instead of in person. That is a difficult thing, and it's it's not terribly uncommon through the ages of the game has existed uh, having trying to engage your players and getting them to invest more in the narrative and their characters is a is a challenge because it depends on, on the players in the table I believe um, sometimes if they're really invested in the mechanics of the game if they're there because I want to make a character make them badass you can create incentives to trick them into investing into it be like all right guys well you can all show up and make your characters the day of but if you give me a one-page character backstory that I that I deem of a certain level of decent quality and I find in, uh, arresting, you can start with the magical item of this level. Or you can start with this amount of money. And suddenly you take a mechanical interest in them and, and give them something that they can, I can have this over the other players if I complete this. Okay, I'm gonna sit down and come up with the story. And you trick them into accidentally making a story that you can then pull into the narrative of your game and hopefully thread them into this needle of caring about the world they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, that's one trick that's worked a lot for me in the past. That is so funny. We did literally the same thing at Wayfinder, my old LARP summer camp. <laughs> what we would do, when we would do capture the flag with young boys, with, you know, little 12 year old boys are just sword, 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 sword. And we are like, okay, how do we like hide the medicine in the snack? Yeah. Like how do we get the role playing <laughs> in there? And we used to do this thing where we would have, uh, mo- staff members would dress up as monsters. They'd have a little monster mask and these big foam weapons and they'd be full adult staff members and they would be neutral, just roaming around. But these kids, uh, if they, they would, you know, through trial and error, discover if we go fight them, um, they'll kill us. Yeah. If we go talk to them, we can actually sometimes convince them to go fight the other side. Uh, so you'd have these twelve-year-old boys running up and being like, "Monster, monster, be our friend, be our friend." Uh, got them. Um, uh, but I love that that tricking them aspect there. I would say also. Um, this can be really challenging. And one of the things I think you have, that this is like a grim answer to this question, but I think a, a blunt discussion of like, hey, as a DM, I'd like to be fulfilled with this sort of more role-playing aspect. Um, is this an element of the game you guys are interested in? Because if you have a bunch of sober adults look you in the eye over your Skype and go, I am not interested in role-playing, that's something you, as as difference of an opinion as that is, you have to respect yeah and and think if that's the kind of game you want to run there is a difficult decision sometimes where you realize i really want to play this but is it worth my time if we cannot find mutual appreciation of what we want out of this and perhaps you're like i just i'm willing to sacrifice this level of my expectation to make this game happen, and that's fine, but you have to have that that conversation and agree to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there also is a level where you're like, for the amount of energy I'm putting into this game, if my players aren't gonna engage and they're not willing to meet me halfway, 
maybe I need to find other players who are willing to meet me on that level. Mm-hmm. Not everyone has that that luxury, depending on where you're looking. But thankfully, as the community grows and you know, you'll have more and more options, especially if you're used to roll twenty of engaging with other players and finding groups of people that are more interested in what kind of story you want to tell. Yeah, and you have it's it's. Yeah, you, you have to make sure that you're all on the same page with expectation. You can trick them into it, uh, have that that talk. And, and here's the thing, too. The dungeon master, it's not your job to entertain your players. You're not you're not a hired, you know, physician who, who it, you know, you're, you're earning a pension here to, yeah. to ensure that they are having a good time. Yeah. Uh, the magic of this game is where the players come to the same level that the DM is. You have to engage and bring as much energy and as much interest to it as the dm is trying to do and that goes both ways the players are super ready ready to engage and the dm is super blase about it and is is expecting you to guide the story then maybe that's a conversation you have to have on that end too yeah 100 percent. it can be really challenging and obviously the the situation uh, teddy's in is like it's tricky but i would say too like talk to them sometimes i I will just do a character creation session where it's like we're not going to play tonight we're just going to talk about why the hell we all go into dungeons? Mm-hmm. I, you know, we're just gonna take a day to talk about who these people are. Or if you feel like maybe it could be that your players are not engaging with this, not out of some sense of malice, but out of genuine discomfort or or a feeling of self consciousness. Yeah. Can you, is there something you can do where you can send them a questionnaire? You can say, I just want you to answer these five questions about your yes. character. Um, that can go so far, especially if people have never played in a high role play style before. You can really create a, a cushion. For them by going like, hey, don't even worry about role playing right now. Just tell me uh, what's your character hate the most about goblins, you know, yeah. or something like that. Really small. Does your character have a catchphrase? I mean, like you can literally start on the most granular, small details, and you'll be amazed at watching how some of those can really key people in, yeah. and then it gets into their bloodstream. Yeah, and be like, like, what's your what's your favorite character in your favorite movie? You know, start using pop pop culture references help too. If they're a major consumer of media, it can be like, all right, what's your favorite movie? What's your favorite character in there? What do you like about that character? What you know, what about that character really makes you go like, yeah, I I, I really enjoy this story and I, I identify with that character. Mm-hmm. Cool. How is your character that you're making in this game now similar to them? Yeah. How are they different? You know, but finding those touchstones for people that have that discomfort and don't quite know yet or have the tools to engage with an amorphous character personality, finding those touchstones are a really good way to kind of ease them into it and lead them into that space. If they're like, yeah, John Wick's great. All right, cool, what about John Wick's great? He feels like a man who was wronged and is, you know, even though he does bad things on a, on a societal level, he has a code of honor and he just wants to do the right thing. All right, cool. Hmm. What about your fighter? Like, oh yeah, I know. It'd be kind of interesting if he went in a similar vein. Or well, you know, what, what wrongs him? What what is the sense of justice? What does he see as a as a perceived wrong in this world? Well, he hates when you know when 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 families are hurt by the system. Okay, was there a family? Was his family hurt in the system? You know, you kind of guide them to that touchstone, and that helps get them into a more comfortable space of of defining those aspects of why their character fits in this world and what guides them in it ultimately. I agree. It might not. And none of these might work. You know, that's the thing. There's no no real you know rainbow road to an answer to this there's just there's options and there's tools and many more beyond what we've discussed here that you can find online and ask in forums and reddits and stuff like that for feedback and hopefully one of these will help and there's a possibility it might not and you either have to adjust your expectations or maybe just they have to find a dm that fits their style and you need to find players that fit yours yeah i that's absolutely right uh when you're this is from wonk daddy 
Wong Daddy, what up? <laughs> when you're world building, how do you decide what to flesh out and what to leave vague? I feel like whenever I try to get into creating a campaign myself, I get overwhelmed with all the little details, and I feel like I need to have an answer for everything, or else I'll get stuck and ruin the entire thing. That is a very common concern. Yeah. I've fallen into that trap. <laughs> Well, yeah, because you want to have a good return on investment, right? And it, you, there are certain points when you're designing, whether you're designing a city in your setting or the full cosmology of the war between the gods a thousand, thousand years ago, there's always this question you're asking in your head of what has the highest likelihood of being something that brings joy to my players? Because every DM has felt the sting of, you don't want to talk to the Thieves Guild in the city? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, work. Um, So that is really frustrating. Um, I would say for one thing, to play off of that particular element, that Thieves Guild that you felt you had to throw away, that you put so much energy into, that isn't necessarily discarded. It can be reskinned and introduced later in the game at another place and perhaps they might now want to check out this other thieves guild. And you're like, oh yes, this isn't the the Libra Arcasium. This is, you know, the the Skybearers. Just quickly <laughs> scribble on the front and hand it over. You know, it's very much you want to use all the parts of the buffalo uh, yeah. in your campaigns, and nothing goes to waste. And so don't don't consider that if they don't go a certain path or interact with a specific faction or, or NPC that you're hoping they would, you can always find a way to retool them and bring them back in your story and still see that elevated. But um, but yeah, I mean, as, as far as limitations, it's it's a fine line. I myself, when it comes to, to to world building on a small scale, like a city, I try to keep it to two pages. Yeah. And that is discussing, like an overall paragraph that is the theme of the location. You know, what's it look like? What's it smell like? The people that live there, is it squalor? Is it is it a higher society? Is there a combination of the two and how do they interact? Is there a ruling class? Who, who kind of, who are seen as the overlords of this location? Mm-hmm. And perhaps a, a sentence or two about what are the major trades that go on here? You know, the the society here, does it, does it function on, uh, you know, natural goods? Does it come off of produce? Does it come off of mercenary work? Does it come off of, uh, you know, a, a, a plentiful ore mine nearby? Or is it merely a trade post and it's all other imports coming in and out? Mm-hmm. That already gives you something in just very basic bullet points, an idea of where to make things up in that space. That is, I think, really key. And it's the idea of, and this is going to be different for everyone. Yeah. So, so the answer I'm going to give is relative to you, the viewer. But that doesn't mean that it's not real or actionable. And the advice is I create as much pre-work information. And this goes for, uh, you know, there, there are certain things that you have to do concretely, like stat blocks for monsters, you got to do that concretely. But things that are the narrative world building, cities, uh, plots, characters, motivations, I do try always to hit the bullseye, which is exactly as much as I need to know to make improvising the things I don't easy. Yes. 
right? And you can almost, to give you a weird visual analysis, it's almost like you have void and you're just trying to raise one mountain over here and one little city over here and a character over here until the sort of grayish spaces that are still void are borrowing enough texture and illumination from the other things you've populated the world with that you're like, there's no more places of pure void anymore. It's just enough information scattered around that if I have to go into this middle part where it's like, well, what's between the city you said exists and the mountain you said exists? And it's like, cool, I have enough information from those two things that I know what's there. Exactly. It's 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 preparing enough for yourself that you can make informed decisions in the spot based on what you've already prepared. That, that, that was a great visual <laughs> example of exactly that. I'm, I'm genuinely impressed. <laughs> well done. Shucks. Um, <laughs> uh, but there is, I think it's really true, and I think there's uh, something else that I love as well. And I'll come, this comes back full circle we were talking about before, which is like what guides world building, which is make sure that the work you're doing serves what you're trying to accomplish. And what I mean by that is, I think we can, at least for me as a DM, a lot of times when I'm making something, I kind of have an idea of what I want it to do. Like, you're making a city, cool. Not all cities serve the same purpose in D&D. Is this city like the incredible shining Minas Tirith where its job is to be like the beautiful seat of culture? Cool, you should flesh out some statues, some fa public fountains. Where's the big mage guild where they do the incredible stuff? What's the holiday they're gonna be celebrating when you get there? Cool, this is like the shady, Dock City, like the crime city, that one needs thieves guilds. And that one you should stat out some like street toughs that might try to rob the PCs. So I think you can narrow in rather than having to do everything for everywhere, think what's the job? of this part of the setting. What is this on my Swiss army knife of narrative things I'm creating for how they're gonna interact with the PCs? Yeah, and consider too, and that, that, that's, that's world building on the kind of micro city scale. On a macro scale, um, only enough of the themes that you could, same thing you can build off of. You know, the, the cities you wanna flesh out, the, the, the locations the party are heading towards, you kinda wanna lay the track ahead of you a little bit, but you don't have to you know, flesh out the entirety of the pantheon and their history. You can be like, are there gods? Is there a singular god? Are there no gods and, and they've been destroyed? Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's enough information. Have a, a god of love with a name. That's all you need. You don't have to talk about, you know, you know, 2,000 years before they were risen from the waters in this era and then they fought that you totally can by all means. But if you know there's a god of love, mm -hmm. that's enough. You'd be like, you see a statue of, uh, you know, a young woman holding forth a wreath made of flowers and she's, you know, Dena, the goddess of love. The player's like, oh shit, all right, cool. That's all you need. And you can you can riff off of that, or, or the players will keep walking, you're like, cool, they didn't need any more information about that. <laughs> you know, no, no, that's, that's all they need. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like on, on a macro scale, you only need a few sentences, you only need something that you can reference in the lore or that, that you can use as inspiration to other more micro world building. And then as you get to continents and you get to regions and you get to cities, that's when you get a little more detailed. And even then, a lot of my world building for the last campaign, especially, I only did as the players were going along. Don't, yeah, that's huge. And you can't discredit that. Cause like, th there's a funny thing, as I, th I think two things are, there's a great old quote, like a World War II quote of like, some general was like, plans are useless, planning is essential, which I love, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, What's great about that when you look at it is, I think it's important for you as a DM to be like, what are what's this world gonna feel like? What's it gonna be like? What's the vibe I'm going for? A classic high fantasy, something else. But also, everything you make has to be able to get thrown away if what happens at the table 
changes things. Yes. And there's an element that's really fun to, like I made this setting that I thought was all like sky pulp, steampunky, Miyazaki, biplanes and this and that and that. And I was like, yeah, this is gonna be so cool. And then my PCs around level three or four were like, we're gonna stage a revolution against the empire and we're gonna overthrow them. And I was like, this got very dark. <laughs> and and the, for the past many years now, the whole tone changed where it's the kind of aesthetic of these like biplanes and zeppelins and stuff like that, but it has taken this emotional tone of like, we are trying to overthrow an evil empire and we are be we are revolutionaries we're freedom fighters and so as a dm on the level of macro stuff like theme and world and then on the micro level of just who you thought they were going to talk to at the tavern you gotta be ready to completely switch things on their head based on what the pcs are going to throw at you oh easily easily <laughs> i mean and and now once again the, the players will fuck everything up um <laughs> and they will inform your maddening chase to put things together and so enough preparation to where you you have things to fall back on yeah. but you don't have to flesh everything out in advance it's too it's too intimidating my current campaign I, I wasn't expecting it to have as many dark themes but the players all made characters with super tragic backstories for the most part and i was like okay well there's gonna be a lot of tragedy uh, that we're gonna go through. So I hope this is cathartic for all of our viewers, because um, it's gonna be for us. Uh, it's almost like an episode of Chopped or Iron Chef, where like the DM is this chef, and then like, what's the special ingredient? Sadness. Yeah. Well, like, I, well, I, I built this new campaign to have a lot more of of like intense conflict and and to show uh, you know. The, the disparate challenges of, of power structures and class structures and different societies and conflicts that hit that space. And so on top of that, they threw a tragedy. I'm like, okay, so we're doing Dickensian <laughs> fantasy practically in some ways. Uh, that wasn't expected, but I guess it's we're running with, you know. Uh, so yeah, you, you have to be prepared to be malleable and, and just prepare the players to, to fuck with your shit. And they will. They <laughs> always. always do. And, but, but you know what? They're why we do it. Exactly. They're why we do it. <laughs> Uh, guys, this has been Adventuring Academy. Thank you so much to my guest, Matthew Mercer. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Uh, cheers. We'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for watching. Bye. Woo. This has been a Dropout Podcast. For video of today's show, plus more exclusive series, go to dropout.tv.